Hello and welcome. You're listening to Catalyst, a podcast brought to you by the innovation community at Deutsche Bank. In this podcast, we'll explore how organizations across industries are dealing with and reacting to transformation, disruption, and innovation. We'll focus specifically on regional developments from the Asia Pacific region, but we'll also look to incorporate views from the broader global community. My name is Marcus Strotter, and I'm head of strategy and innovation for Asia Pacific at Deutsche Bank, based here in Singapore. And delighted to have Samad Bansal from Wise with us today, who is the APAC Business Development Lead. Hi, Marcus. How are you? Very well, thank you. Really excited to embark upon this kind of journey with you. Likewise, super excited to be here. Maybe as an introduction, you could give us a little bit of a you know background about you, how you came to you know occupy your current position at Wise. Yeah, so um, I started off being an equity traded Goldman. And also during that time, starting to develop an understanding of the innovation that was happening in finance, right? And that's truly when I started getting familiar with the innovation that was happening beyond just the equity sales trading deck, uh, desk that I was a part of. And as I started exploring that space, I also had a very interesting personal experience. I wanted to send money back home. I was in Hong Kong. My family's in India. And I queued up in one of the banks there to get the best possible FX rate. I negotiated with the person there at the desk and I walked away feeling like I'd have accomplished something. Only to later realize that I had been charged a humongous spread. You could literally drive a boat through it. Um, And the money reaching extremely late. And so that's when I started looking for fintechs out there that was solving this problem. And that was my first experience with then the company called Transferwise. Since then, my association with Transferwise has continued. I moved from Goldman into a Series A startup here in Singapore uh, in the fintech space. And then this opportunity with Wise arose. Um, I'd always been a huge fan of the company, what they'd achieved globally, what their culture stood for. And so, yeah, I joined the company to lead their WISE um, for banks here in APAC. Thanks for sharing that, that overview. I think it's really interesting how you frame it and, you know, a problem drove you to where you are today. So maybe just reflecting on, you know, the WISE for bank, you know, kind of remit that you have. Could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what that entails? This infrastructure, this platform that we've built, there is a need out there, whether that's from incumbent banks who are trying to solve and give that same retail cross-border experience to their customers to tap into. Because the reality is today, cross-border money movement is made up of a patchwork of legacy infrastructure, trying to talk to each other, um, and it's not efficient. And so that's when we started opening up our infrastructure as a platform for neobanks, for incumbents, for businesses um, that have the need to do cross-border international payments to tap into our infrastructure. So that's broadly what Wise for Banks is, taking this end-to-end platform that we've built and working and partnering with banks that have that same strategic mindset to say, look, transparency is important. Customers should know exactly what they're paying for their remittances, should be able to send money instantly and at a low cost. Great. And if you think about that spirit of, I guess, open innovation and partnerships, do you see that you know, more fitting with, I guess, traditional kind of retail banking presences? Or do you also see, you know, perhaps an opportunity on, say, the wholesale or institutional, you know, side of things? What we've essentially done is we have tapped into the more advanced domestic payment trails. So if you think about FPS in London, you think about Fast in Singapore, those are 
amazing real-time payment innovations that have happened domestically in these markets. What we are doing is using our proprietary technology to connect these two together so that if you're sending money from Singapore to someone in UK, we get the payment through fast, which is instant. We do the payout through fast, which is instant. And all the processing in between is instant as well. Now, in markets where the domestic payment rails are either not instant or are not accessible for companies and fintechs like us, we do rely on the corporate and the wholesale banking infrastructure to allow us to initiate those payments and process these payments and transfers. So it's almost synergies that we're unlocking, mm -hmm. right? We are allowing banks to be able to work and deliver on the retail SMB customer expectations. And on the other side of the spectrum, leveraging some of the infrastructure that banks domestically have created and become so good at and just bridging that together to ensure that the end customer gets value. Yeah, so that, you know, that partnership to really kind of address the needs and breaking them down and, you know, I guess, formulate a more compelling, you know, proposition, I think, in the APAC context, do you see a particular opportunity driven by perhaps, you know, topics such as, you know, the need for financial inclusion? You know, I was reading, you know, earlier today, a statistic that somewhat 30% of the world's, you know, non-banked populations exist in this part of the world. So do you think financial players have to embrace this mentality? to serve also a kind of societal and policy need. That's very true, right? And I think that stat itself is very telling because if you think historically, a majority of the customer segments, population, a lot of these APAC markets have been outside the contours of formal domestic banking. And I'm not even talking about them having access to international banking, right? This yeah. is just domestic banking needs and they've been away from that. What new innovation and technology has done is it's brought down the barriers and allowed access. So now an SMB, a freelancer, a social influencer wants to be able to open banks, wants to be able to receive money seamlessly, is able to do that through this innovation, through this technology and the fintechs that we are seeing. So that is definitely a unique trend that we are seeing here in APAC, is just solving for access, right? Sizamat, you, you mentioned, you know, this real driver in the APAC context about, you know, solving for, you know, real tangible needs. I mean, I, I shared with you earlier on, you know, British by background and, you know, when I was moving to Singapore, you see this huge rise of, you know, we called them challenger banks. I mean, Monzo, Starling, Atom, right, as an example. And one of the things which really, you know, kind of stuck in my mind was, these organizations developing beautiful and intuitive experiences for their clients, you know, using a lot of the underlying data that, you know, I guess large incumbent traditional banks may have at their disposal, but, you know, perhaps are not able to, you know, kind of use in the same way that I guess companies that are technologically and data first wired from the outset may be able to use them. So I, 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 was, I, I wanted to really understand from you, do you also see this same type of customer and consumer kind of, you know, driver emerging in APAC? Because you talk about trying to solve for social and, you know, kind of these big problem needs in the APAC context. It's an interesting dynamic, right? So we talked about access, mm -hmm. right? Access is definitely a huge opportunity. Just getting people into the formal financial folds is one of the drivers in APAC. But from a customer expectation perspective, the beauty is that, customer expectations will always rebase to the best experience that is available today. So, it, and, and what I mean by that is 
any customer will evaluate a service irrespective of where they are in the world around three dimensions, right? The speed, transparency, and the convenience. And I think that holds true here in APAC. Um, in some cases, a lot more so because you have real-time payments in Singapore, you have peer-to-peer -peer wallets, you are so used to having these digital-first innovations that you will expect that across the spectrum. So I think that's base, right? Yeah. And on top of that, you then have this uh, really interesting dynamic of access, but you also have a fairly macro um, picture, which is US or Europe mm -hmm. are broadly one unified region or regulatory framework. Whereas in APAC, you have these extremely fragmented, um, almost micro economies that are intertwined and interlinked with each other. And so there is immense value in being able to stitch all of these together in a seamless manner. And so if we think about, you know, the fragmentation, you know, a lot of the regulators across the region have launched, you know, digital banking licenses. I mean, this is a, you know, if I could call it like a phenomena, right, right. which is, which, which, which is, you know, kind of interesting. And I think what's, you know, kind of different compared to, say, the European or indeed, you know, the American kind of example is these digital players, these digital banks they're seemingly more created as a result of these partnerships, these joint venture initiatives or consortias, rather than going along the kind of startup kind of provenance of this. So I'd love to get a sense from you, you know, what's your take on these digital bank initiatives and how do you see those organizations as they're kind of being formed, relating and responding to those free buckets? Yeah, and I think... Um... I was in Hong Kong before the virtual banks were launched and live. Um, and I remember my experience banking with one of the largest banks there was um, beyond abysmal. And, and I'll um, cl clarify what I mean by that, right? There was a minimum balance, whatever fee that they would charge if you dipped below a certain balance. Uh, domestic transfers were costly. They were not zero. Um, and all it took was for the XKMA to come and say, hey, you're going to have competition. You're going to have virtual digital first banks that are going to come and maybe take away your customers. And so when these virtual banks like ZA, Mox, et cetera, launched, you saw the incumbents really take that moment to say, does it even make sense for me to have this fee? Does it make sense for me to be charging customers for domestic payments and roll those back? So what these digital banking initiatives are doing is almost shift F5 for the banking industry, right? It, it's not resetting it, but it's definitely pausing the incumbents, giving them the opportunity to refresh what the customer expectations are and creating that competitive threat to say, you move, you innovate, uh, or else you have these digital banks that if they figure out which is also a big if, right? But if they do figure it out, we'll take the customer away from you. So I think that's definitely something that holds true across. You see what Kakao Bank in Korea is doing. You see what some of these virtual banks in Hong Kong is doing. And hopefully that's what you'll see here in Singapore as well. Now, in Singapore specifically, if you look at the people who applied for these licenses, you've, you had Razor and C who are e-commerce and gaming companies. You had Grab that is known for its micro gig economy workers and marketplaces, right? 
they are catering to a customer segment that is so different from what a typical domestic bank would cater to. Like a typical domestic bank is not even thinking of it from the lens of, hey, what are the needs that an e-commerce SMB platform would have? What are the needs that a driver in one of these gig economy um, platforms would have, right? They're not putting that lens on. And so I think what these consumer platforms are realizing that the use cases that they've seen customers adopt them for are use cases that they can fulfill by getting into the financial fold. In my opinion, very exciting to see how some of these consumer platforms embrace digital banking with all the uh, complexities that come with it, but truly deliver to those customers' expectations and needs. It's it's interesting that you seize upon the kind of, you know, persona creation and how, you know, the kind of these, uh, I guess, you know, partnerships, joint ventures, I wrote down, you know, they're reimagining the, you know, kind of banking through these new constructs in terms of personas. So from an incumbent point of view, you know, we look at uh, some of our kind of banking clients, particularly in the markets in which we have a retail presence through you know, the personas that we have assessed customers over the last, you know, I guess, 20 to 30 years. But, you know, what does the society of tomorrow kind of look like? And how do we as an organization, you know, prepare for for that change? Um, The other point, which I think was really interesting, is you talk about, you know, regulation really being actually kind of like a driver, along with consumer need, consumer kind of centricity. So it'd be really interesting to get a sense from you. What promise do you think certain technologies have for the sector and the industry at large over the you know the coming years and thinking again through the prism of wise you know what opportunities do you also see your organization being able to take advantage of uh, that's an um, interesting point and it, 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 it just touching upon a little bit and spending some time around the regulatory bit that you mentioned right uh, when we started off in singapore the regulator required for us to do face-to-face verification and that wasn't solving for the customer needs. That was not a convenient experience that the customer had. Mm-hmm. And so it took uh, a fair bit of collaboration, working with the regulator, creating that shared context, empathizing with them what these risks were, educating them from the best practices that we had had in other markets, mm-hmm. as well as how technology helps mitigate those risks to be able to get to a place where today you can use my info, get verified, and use our services. And that openness for conversations with regulators has only grown across not just Singapore, but other markets, whether you take uh, very recently, in fact, RBI announced that non-fintech, non-banks can now start using NEFT and RTGS for payments, right? So you're seeing a lot of these initiatives and openness towards fintech starting to grow in APAC. From our perspective, I think APAC is a very interesting market, right? We've built something globally Mm -hmm. and there is a customer expectation around us moving money seamlessly with those same um, experience, that high NPS, that high conversion rates that we've seen um, and deliver those to each of the markets that we enter. But there's also a localization that needs to be done. And um, through a lot of the customer surveys and NPS scores that comments that we get, speed always figured as one key important driving factor here in APAC, right? And so we worked with the regulator again to get access to faster payment rails here in um, Singapore. So we are a member of FAST now. We are connected into Do It Now in Malaysia, which is the equivalent of FAST in Malaysia, right? Um, So that's how we've 
localized or almost taken what the customers in each of these markets truly value and built that into our product. Another example is wallets, right? In some of the Southeast Asian markets, physical proximity to banks is just very difficult, right? And wallets are starting to emerge as this new way of day-to-day transactions. So we've integrated into wallets so that you can send money directly to the recipient's wallet and they can go about using that QR code scannings, et cetera, right? Back to that platform ecosystem that we are seeing, right? You have these consumer platforms that started off as a chat, got millions of customers and now have become banks, right? And that's replicated, surprisingly, like we should start a chat company, but um, that's been replicated across multiple markets. Why that's possible in APAC is because of the scale that each of these markets allows you to do, right? Like you solve one customer needs, you get a lot of customers on there, and then you start adding value-added services on top of that. The reality is you don't want to reinvent the wheel. You don't want to set up your own global infrastructure for banking or a credit scoring system. You want to use the best-in-class providers out there and consume and use their products and offer that to your customers through your platforms. You paint a really kind of rosy picture of innovation, you know, disruption and transformation more broadly right, in our region and I think more broadly for you know, the global financial industry. What do you see as the biggest you know, kind of challenges and the biggest threats? Right? You know, what, what could pop this, this bubble? How is WISE right, you know, solidifying, um, I guess, its market position, its you know, kind of incumbency, if I could use that word? Challenges, from our perspective, I think there is, in APAC specifically, right, there is still a fair bit of legacy mindset. And, and what I mean by that is you think about some of the regulators and some of the markets still saying, look, domestic payments or access to payment trails mm-hmm. should be a domain of the banks, yeah. right? Innovative companies or fintechs shouldn't get access to it, right? We're starting to see slight changes there, but that legacy mindset is something that slows us down. So they're not they're coming from the right lens, right? Their mandate is to protect customers. They they need to understand these risks. But I think what they don't necessarily appreciate is how the new technologies help mitigate those risks, how some of these controls are being used to uh, address some of the concerns that they have. So that open dialogue, that um, shared context is really important for us and the regulators to sit down and understand what exactly are we trying to solve here and what exactly are the risks and how do we mitigate them, right? Other one is around just the technology, right? Like in a few markets where we don't have access to the direct payment trails, we work with some of the banks um, and they don't have API first, right? They still have batch processing. They still have a lot of these um, legacy processes in place, which slows us down. So on that point, your almost kind of advocacy to certain regulators to, you know, help drive a sea change of opinion and, you know, kind of, I guess, access, all right? Yeah. Do you also, in, you know, kind of those instances where you encounter large, clunky financial institutions, do you engage on a kind of similar layer of, you know, advocacy Absolutely. internally? Yeah, and I think um, the more you speak with them, right, and the more you engage with them, it's more apparent that what needs to change is not just being agile in your engineering or your development teams, right? You need to be able to give that 
mandate that autonomy across from the engineering team to actually launching and getting something live, right? So it's not just the engineering team, it's the compliance teams that need to get on board, it's the product teams that need to get on board, it's the marketing PR teams that need to get on board. So I think there is definitely a strong cultural uh, element there because a lot of banks will typically optimize for minimizing failures as opposed to minimizing the cost of failures, right? Um, and I think that's something that shines through. The more conversations that we have, the more we impress upon how customer expectations are changing, what value we can add to them as a customer of theirs, um, there we are able to move some of these conversations. We've worked with banks who've, we've been the first users of the APIs that they've built yep. for transaction processing, for KYC checks, et cetera, right? So definitely been able to um, influence some of these roadmaps with the bigger banks as well. Lots of learnings, I think we can also, you know, take back within the DB context. Well, two final questions. So you, you, you talk a lot about startups versus, you know, or scale-ups versus, you know, incumbent organizations. You know, there's this acceptance of failure, right? And that actually you learn from those failures and that makes probably what you think go on to do more robust. So what's been the biggest failure, right, in, 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 in that experience? And, and, and what, have, what have you learned from that? What has it contributed towards, right, the approach which you're now kind of pursuing, be that a professional, you know, example or indeed a personal example? Very interesting, right? So I think a, it, it, I won't term it as a failure, but definitely a challenge, mm -hmm. right? So in Wise for Banks, um, as you can imagine, we have a lot of conversations with some of the biggest incumbents, mm -hmm. uh, impressing upon them the need for them to deliver on the customer's cross-border remittance needs, right? And we are built on transparency, and we truly believe that the customer should always see the live mid-market exchange rate and the fee for that service separately, right? Because that's fair. And in a lot of our partnerships, when we're speaking with banks, they don't buy into it. Right. For the longest of times, they've always put in a spread in the FX and they've marketed it as being zero cost to the customer. Right. And that's what they've been aware of. It's the legacy business model. And so our approach to transparency with banks has been to talk about how it enables this as a competitive mode. Right. Because the reality is that customers are asking for it. It's not a technical innovation. It's just a business decision. It's a business innovation. But if you think about it, it also drives a very strong strategic advantage for them. If you move to transparency, very few banks are going to say, yes, we will be transparent as well. Almost framing something that we've seen customers understand and take it to the context of saying, what does this mean for the bank has been a learning. That's something that we as an organization are also learning uh, here in APAC. I guess my final question is, coming back to your organization, why is for banks? You know, what, what should we be looking out for? You know, what can we expect from you guys over the next 6 to 12 months in both the APAC and global context? Yeah, I think um, we continue to open more of our products or services up as a platform, right? So if you're truly focusing on solving and building for the international customer. We essentially have that built <laughs> over the last 10 years. And so we'd be launching, um, working and partnering with quite a few uh, players globally and in the region. So that wraps up our 
inaugural episode of the podcast. A big thank you to Samad for joining Thanks us so much, and sharing Marcus. some insights from his perspective about the innovation ecosystem in Asia Pacific and really looking forward to watching from a distance uh, to see how his new endeavors at WISE pan out over the coming months. <laughs>